I'm going to start a series uh, looking at John's Gospel, just because I want to look at uh, Jesus through John's eyes. And I like the name. Come on, it's funny, really. It's, I've got to warm up a bit, you know. It takes time. John was the youngest disciple, probably. He probably was in his teens when, he followed, when Jesus called him. He was the youngest disciple to say yes to Jesus, and he was probably the oldest disciple. In other words, he died in his 80s, apparently. He ended up in exile. He was in Patmos for a while. He wrote the book of Revelation. And uh, he... Uh, was the one who, uh, Jesus, he called himself uh, the one beloved by Jesus. It's got a bit of echo to it, I think. Um, and we've talked before about how Peter was one who followed Jesus. And Peter used to say, I will do this and I will do that. And then the rooster crowed and uh, poor old Peter realized he couldn't do it. And John, when he followed uh, Jesus, his whole identity was... I am loved by Jesus. And I think that went very deep into him. He was one who was seated, seated at his, very close to him at the Last Supper. And John just knew himself to be loved by Jesus. And so it was at the cross when Jesus was dying and Jesus' mother was there. Jesus says to John, Behold your mother, mother, behold your son. Jesus entrusted his mother to John and really said, John, will you be the son that my mother's just lost? And he, when he wrote his gospel, he wrote his gospel years after the others had been written. So there was Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and Matthew, Mark, Luke and John had already been written. Mark was probably written first uh, by uh, somebody who was translating and scribing what Peter might have been tell talking about because Peter probably couldn't write. Then Matthew was written for the Jews to try and explain to the Jews why Jesus was such good news. And then Luke was written for the Gentiles, for the non-Jews, to try and explain to them why Jesus was such good news. And John had those three Gospels, those three accounts of Jesus in front of him where he would have read them before he wrote his own Gospel. And he wrote, he wrote his Gospel to try and give meaning to what had already been laid out in a factual form in the other three Gospels. So John, as an older man, was trying to say, this is what was meant. This is what Jesus was doing. This is how we understand the meaning of his life, his death, and his resurrection. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful gospel. It's a wonderful one. It's rich. It's deep. So I'm going to talk about the wedding of Cana. I must have talked about this, I don't know how many times over the last 40 years. And every time I come to these things, there's new stuff. And what I want to focus on today is God as the provider, the God who is the one who actually always provides. And what I'm testifying to today is, I mean, seven or eight years ago, I sat in front of a computer with $300 and hearing God say, follow me, and I had no clue how on earth it was going to happen. My book's coming out in a month. You can read the rest of the story. <laughs> it's one of the better parts of an embarrassing account. Um, but... God was faithful. And God took me from that place to be here where I never ever thought I'd ever be again. Nor did many of us. We are a testimony to God's goodness and his grace and his faithfulness. And we will boast of our weakness and our, our disgrace so that he gets glory. And so John um, has this wonderful insight into who Jesus is and, and 
into what he was about. And so I want to talk about that. He starts his gospel. I'm, not, I'm just skipping this part, but he just says, in the beginning was the word and the word became flesh. And John encountered that flesh on the, on the, on the shores of Galilee with his family when Jesus came and said, uh, follow me. And everything changed when Jesus said to his disciples, follow me, when the word became flesh. Everything changed. There's some people who say it's got to be biblical and you just go read the Bible. I'm going to talk about this at the conference. You read the Bible in order to have an experience. And when the word became flesh, appeared on the shores of Galilee and said to John, follow me. He left his nets and he followed him. And what changed then? In the Old Testament and right up until the time of Jesus and really right through the time of Jesus, right until today, there were those who took the scriptures and they interpreted them and they read them within their own understanding. They drew their their conclusions and said, this is who God is. And their conclusions fell far short of the revelation of who God is in Jesus. And when Jesus came into this world, he blew blew apart the paradigms, the smallness of so many of the interpretations. So, for instance, after the resurrection, when you have Jesus walking along the Emmaus Road, he opens up the scriptures to people who are downcast and he says to them, this is what it means because their conclusions about what had happened and what the scriptures say had left them in depression and despair. And Jesus picked up those same scriptures and he said this. That's why he said that as well. Today this is fulfilled. The word is made flesh. John was there and he responded. Now, why is that so remarkable? Because I believe one of the just things that God dropped into my head this week was in the Old Testament, people followed him head first. And in the New Testament, they were invited to follow him feet first. He said, follow me, even though you don't understand. But if you follow me, and if you keep company with me, your head will catch up. Because where we are going, your mind will never allow you to go. If you have to try and work out what we are doing, you will never follow me. Because I'm about to blow your paradigms. Does that make sense? So my first question this morning is, how many of us are trying to follow God head first? How many of us are stuck? And we got stuck at some place where we don't understand or where we're offended. Well, why don't you just smack your head, give it a shake, and say, down, boy, down. Your head is never going to wrap itself around who God is and who Jesus is. If you want to follow Jesus with your feet, start listening to your heart. And start paying attention to what's going on in your heart. Because your heart determines how you live. When the chips are down, you react. When the chips are down, you do things. And they tend to come out of your emotions, not out of your head. Your head will reflect and your head will come in alignment. But if, if if it has to rule, you will never follow Jesus out of the Old Testament. Not into the miracles, not into the, the stuff you don't understand. And God's much more exciting than the limits of my thinking. And one of the t- ways we can get locked down in ourselves is that we lock ourselves into our understanding. 
just say, God, I, I, I want to follow you with my feet. And what that means is just where do you want me to walk? And who do you want me to walk with? Because Jesus called people in John's gospel. He calls them and he says, follow me. Follow me as a relationship. He doesn't say, read the first few chapters, then we'll come back next week, we'll study them. Which is what a lot of our stuff is like. He says, follow me, and as you follow me, we'll have conversations, we'll experience life, and I'll teach you as we go along, and we will reflect on the scriptures. And that's what John did for three years. It captivated him for the rest of his life. It's wonderful. The word became flesh, lived among us, and I was there. And so he began to write down the accounts of Jesus. And in his first chapter, the word became flesh, then he calls people because flesh needs flesh. We need one another. He calls people to follow him, but to follow him together. Some of you are way too isolated. God will get you in the dollar store. He will. Lord, get them. Why? Because you, you die on your own. We all do. No exceptions. Sometimes we need to go in and rescue each other. Sometimes we need to take each other by the scruff of the neck and say, what are you doing? You can't control people, but you can wrestle for them. And so God calls, and Jesus calls. He always calls people into community. So, John, it's not very long after he started calling some of these guys when he comes to chapter 2. Let's look it on video and then we'll talk about it, please. And look at the way Jesus is uh, portrayed in this. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out, and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Don't you love that look on his face? The, the, does he look like some pious little, you know? He doesn't. I think that's a far more healthy view of who Jesus probably was. And he was invited to this wedding. 
And John was telling us about it. John, I'll give you an insight into John. Where In chapter 2, verse 1, it says, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana. If you actually look through the first chapter, you have um, verse 29, the next day, the next day, and then 43, the next day. It should be the fourth day. But John doesn't really care. You see, he says on the third day, because he's going to talk about the wedding of Cana, and put it together with the crucifixion. He's full of symbolism. But he portrays this wedding. Well, it, it happened. Cana, if you go to Cana now, it's just a hill. You can't, Cana is near Nazareth, but you can't see, there's nothing there. It doesn't exist anymore. And they were at this wedding. And Jesus', was, Jesus mother was invited. Joseph was, was dead by the stage, I think. And uh, Mary was there and... The disciples whom Jesus had just called were there and they were all at this wedding, just hanging out. Friends, obviously they, it's, a, it's, not a, it's not a large place. Nazareth is not very far away. You, can, you, you could walk to Nazareth from Cana in maximum half an hour, not even that. You can see it from Cana. So Jesus would have grown up in that region for the 30 years. So it's no surprise that they're invited to these weddings and they enter in and they celebrate together. Now Jesus is at the wedding because he's a friend. He's not at the wedding to work a miracle. He's at the wedding because he's a friend and he's invited. And then this discourse happens where they have this... uh, I've got some bad news as well. In the Greek... In the Greek, Jesus turned water into wine, not grape juice. Our, our silly discussions about wine and grape juice. The only reason we serve grape juice is for children and for, for if, if alcohol is a problem. Jesus turned water into wine because there was a symbolism that came out of that. Um, I think it's amazing how we've managed to get all uptight about the most silly things quite frankly. I hope none of you are obsessing about that now and sort of getting crazy because it's very quiet. So, let's learn from this. It's a very cool story. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. So they ran out of wine. It's a wedding. They ran out of wine. They come to Mary. Why did they come to Mary? Because Mary's probably, I was thinking, she's probably like Lynn. You know, oh, well, I'll sort it out. Mary probably had a reputation for being helpful and being you know, a good organizer. And I'll sort it out. We can go down the road. I know Joe and he's got lots of wine. We'll go and get some from him. And that was a possible solution. It would have been totally caring and loving. But God's spirit was on this thing as well. And so Mary, I think, has a word of knowledge, actually. I think she's nudged by the Father. And I think the Father is honoring Mary. Because Mary, there are very, very few places in the Bible, if any others, where Jesus is challenged. But he's, he, he says, Mary, they, they come to Mary and say, we have no more wine. It's all very discreet. And I love it when she, she says, and then she sort of says to Jesus, they have no more wine. And Jesus is quite so, he doesn't sound too pleased, does he? 
I mean, I think you could, you could, you could speak this in all kinds of ways, but he says, uh, woman, why do you involve me? My hour is not yet come. And it can sound like rude. And I think Mary looked at Jesus and said, son, shut up and do what you're told. <laughs> and I think God the Father let her do that. I think Jesus wasn't sure when his time was coming. You see, I think we put into Jesus the supernatural knowledge that he didn't have. Like he was man filled with the Spirit. And there were things that he didn't know. He wrestled in Gethsemane, don't let this happen to me. There were things that were borderline for him. I'm not talking about taking anything away from him. I'm just saying he was fully human. And he had these limitations of understanding. And he knew where he was heading, but he might not have been absolutely clear of when does it kick into action. And I think God, might, the Father, might have said, Mary, my dear, let's have some fun with the boy today. And so Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. And I think she leans over and says, honey, it has. And then she doesn't actually give Jesus the chance to argue. Because she's mother of that boy. And she calls the servants and says, just do whatever he tells you. That's like me asking you to come up here and say, speak now. And you go, it's like too late. Mum's decided. Mum and dad have decided. You're on. And at that moment, I think, Jesus, having gone, it's not my time, goes, maybe it is. And he gets a word of knowledge. And his father shows him what to do. He says, get them to fill the jars. And those jars, they're six jars. They, they, they were too small in that film. They carry a lot of water. And they're for purification rites. For the cleansing of things so that people will be acceptable before God. And John's describing this story because it's very significant what he's doing. And Jesus says, fill the jars with water. And they fill them with water. And then he says, draw it out. And they draw it out. And they take it to the master's ceremony. And as they take the water to the master's ceremony, um, and he drinks it, he drinks wine. And he says, this is the best wine I've tasted. Most people, you know, have the best stuff first, and then they, they, they serve the cheap stuff. And of course, you wouldn't ever say, because they're drunk. But I doubt, I mean, they probably made some potent stuff. So they pro- it's interesting to think what they were up to. But uh, Jesus is not advocating drunkenness, but he's not paranoid about people having a drink. You see, he's already learned, God's already learned that everything his children touch can end in chaos. I mean, it's not just wine and drugs. It's money, it's time, it's bodies, it's everything. So why fixate on one thing? It's everything has the potential for good or for bad. So they, the master of ceremony goes to the bridegroom and says, man, you've kept the best to last. Do you notice something? That Jesus is quietly sitting at the table and he says to the servants, you go and do this, and they do it. And he says, you know, take it to the master of ceremony. He honors the master of ceremony. There's none of this... Jesus Christ, the Son of the world, is now going to do his first miracle. He's going to turn water into wine. 
which is kind of how we might spin it now, it's very, very hidden. And he honors the master of ceremony. He says, you go and check it out. And the master of ceremony didn't know where it came from, but if you read the scripture, it says, but the servants did. And then he goes and he honors the bridegroom. And the bridegroom gets kind of the kudos for having this cool wine. He's got nothing to do with any of it other than he didn't have enough. And Jesus just blesses him. And he, Jesus doesn't stand up and say to the bridegroom, Hey, you owe me one. Did I ever save your neck right now? Just want you to know that this wine was out and uh, I am the son of God. There's none of that. There's just this very humble intertwining and serving in a hidden way. And John's drawing this to our attention and sort of saying that just in the same way when Jesus would go to the cross, there'd be lots of misunderstanding, but he was transforming something into something else. It was a miracle. God is the provider. God will, when you run out, you go to somebody. Who do you go to? Somebody. Who are we meant to be? The ones who are meant to know Jesus, to color the world. When people come to us, what we are meant to do? Learn from Mary. Do whatever Jesus tells you to do. Well, I don't believe in Jesus. Well, then I guess you're screwed. Sorry, I'm not meant to say that. I was told him. Cheryl's sort of coaching me on how to talk in public. <laughs> not meant to say that. You are messed up. You have no hope. You're out on a tree somewhere. You see, what happens too much is you come to me with your need and I sit down for five hours and we talk about it because I'm going to try and help you. And, I, and we need to do that. But we end up being too much taking it on ourselves. We need to learn how to say, you know, all I know is that Jesus has changed my life. I can't change your life. There is a point where your will needs to come before the living God. So if you want to carry on doing drugs, or if you want to carry on doing that, carry on, but don't keep coming to me for help because there's only one thing I know. He needs to help us stop it because he loves us and he loves you. So do whatever he tells you. What do you think he's telling you? I don't believe in God. Well, what do you think he's telling you? Because your non-belief is not getting you very far. You'd be surprised how God will speak when you've run out. You see, the strange thing about God is that he probably didn't, and he obviously didn't say to Jesus, look, when you get up this morning and you have your devotional, I'm going to tell you that when you go to that wedding in Cana, this is what's going to happen. Jesus seemed to be caught by surprise. And his mother probably didn't know what was going to happen either. You see, many of the things that God does are right now. And there were all kinds of people involved. So Raj sends us a letter and you say, well, God provides. Yeah, Raj sends a letter to the people he knows and says, help. If you want God to work in your life, don't play games and make a thousand different ways to sort of have him work. Just keep it simple. Ask for help. Keep it simple and, and make your needs known. Because God will work through the ordinary in extraordinary ways. He's going to turn water into wine in all kinds of places in your life. Because that's what he does. I've told you the story, but I'll tell it again. I, you know, I was building 
a washroom and 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 I had this bowl and it was this white bowl it was from splashes you know the the plumbing place and it was white it was I I built quite rustic west coast because I'm not good enough to do the other stuff so it was sort of a rustic and I wanted to put this raised I had to put this raised basin in and and the one it's splashes it was white and I, it really was didn't it just clashed and I I, kind of, I didn't have any money and I was struggling with what to do. And then, of course, I had gone into Nanaimo to the tile place and they have raised marble, Italian marble ones, for $500, which, of course, I won. So I look at this thing for a couple of days and said, I cannot actually live in this house and keep looking at that thing because it will just irritate me forever. So eventually I think, okay, and I'm just starting to begin to talk to God again. Really, I mean, I'm beginning to hear him say, John, I love you and and trust me and stuff, but I'm still edgy. So I said, God, humor me, but, you know, if I take this back to Splashes, I'm going to give it back to them. If they give me the money back, I'm going to get that Italian marble one, and I just hope I can survive. So I go off and I take it back, and they, they refund me, and I go off and I buy the Italian marble one, come back home. And I walk down the drive, I've got this marble basin in my hand and on my front doorstep on the mat is a white envelope so I look in the white envelope and there's $500 and I just kind of stopped dead and almost, I think I, I can't remember whether I cried or not I might have cried sounds better if I cried <laughs> but I, I, I kind of <laughs> choked up because I went I said wow because it paid for the basin. And what God said to me was really, really simple. And he just said to me, John, you see, my father had never, ever done that kind of thing. My father never spoiled, never surprised, never paid for anything more than he could. Because he couldn't afford to. But he, my daughter, Michelle, said she's coming over for Thanksgiving and she's going to be on the ferry and it's going to be late. And I said to her, oh, I'll pay for you to fly over Let's have, so we can have an evening together. My father would never do that. I had no clue of what that was like to receive. And God just there said, John, I love you. And I like what you're doing upstairs in that washroom. And I'm just providing for you because I love doing it. Because he was really kind of saying, you know, I'm not stingy. And I'm not a nickel and dime kind of person. And sometimes I just like doing things because I love you, not because there's some reason and that's what Jesus was doing at this wedding. When God is present and we run out, he just says, how can I help? And when I help, I'll make you look good. And then it's up to you whether you give me the glory or not. And then he said to me, he showed me this picture. and he, I just had these arms. I've told you this, but I'll just keep saying, I love telling the story. And, he, and he, had, he was holding people by their ankles. And he was shaking them. And money was falling out of their pockets. And he just said very simply, I have resources all over the world. Trust me. I'll release them to you. Four months later, my friend phones up from Germany, offers me a very simple consulting job with Lufthansa in Germany. I fly over twice in a month, stay in first-class hotel across from the Black Forest and earn $22,000. What a joke. I mean, 
And God just said, I told you. So I'm not standing here talking theory at all. But you know, there was no wine left over at that wedding. You know why? Because as much as you access, that much you will be given. You will never know the water turning into wine until you take hold of the water in faith. And it will turn into wine as you pour it out. So those jars were still full of water. They, were pour, they poured water into those basins. When they served the guests, the wine flowed. That's how God provides. John really goes back to this, the story, uh, another story of God, uh, where Abraham is going up the mountain, Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is now where the Dome of the Rock is, where the um, Islamic place is. What's it called? Gone blank. You know, the big gilded uh, domed, the Dome of the Rock. Yeah. Uh, which is typical of evil and typical of Satan, which is to try and posture and take place of God. You see that in Jerusalem, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre over, over where Jesus is meant to be is a very humble kind of place and the Dome of the Rock is all glittered. Um, but that won't last. And Abraham went up there with his son because God had said, uh, I want you to sacrifice your son, the one who I promised you. And it didn't make any sense to him, but he was following God with his feet actually. And, and he went up and as he was about to sacrifice Isaac, I mean, can you imagine somebody sacrificing their son? In fact, I sent you on trail notes this week a, a, a message about Christians who are, sacrificing, who are allowing their children to die in Iraq right now. Christians where the ISIS, militant ISIS group, the fundamentalist, very extreme Islamic group, takes children out and, and says, uh, unless you renounce Jesus, I'm going to kill them. And they cut their throats. That's happening now. And he said, why does God allow it? And he says, he doesn't allow it. This is what evil does. But if you understand the good, the good news of the resurrection, those kids will be whipped off to heaven. It's very, very tough. But God is very loving, but he's very passionate, he's very powerful. And Abraham went up there and he was about to stab Isaac. And you go, how does he do that? And he says, that's a foretaste of what I'm going to have to do for you. My only son. And Abraham, God stopped him and he said, no, you, can't, you won't be able to actually do what I, I'm going to have to do. I'm not going to put that on you. And he saw a ram in the thicket. And Abraham called that day, he said, Jehovah Jireh, this place is the place where God will provide. And what John is picking up and what John is demonstrating and explaining in that wedding at Cana is God, Jesus, is the one who provides for his people. How cool is that? But you have to walk with Jesus, befriend him, and then trust him in the context of others. We all need a Mother Mary not a Hail Mary, just somebody who says, do what he tells you. With that kind of authority, like, Jesus, don't mess with your mother. And I just want to encourage you today that God is present for you like he was present in that place for that wedding feast. And he absolutely loves you. And you know those servants, when they were told by Jesus what to do, they went and did it. They didn't argue and say, what do you mean fill those things and give them? He doesn't want water, he wants wine. They did what they were told. 
And we are called to be servants. People who do things that look crazy, but very often people won't even see the crazy part. They'll just see us doing things and they won't know why we're doing them. And we're looking quite confident and we're pouring water into their basin and they're seeing wine. There's not that much difference between laying hands on the sick and you lay hands on the sick and your weakness and God pours out his wine of healing. And they go, oh, you should get so-and-so to pray for you because what happened to me? That's the wrong thing. It's not the mug. It's the power. God wants to use you because the servants are us. And sometimes we're stuck because we keep seeing only water. And he says, you will only see water until you actually pour it out over somebody else and watch the wine. God has placed in you resources way beyond your understanding. That's what John's testifying to. And as you actually just serve and you lift other people up, all heaven will break loose. God is your provider. That's John's first story of Jesus and how he transformed people's lives. You see, there are two ways of living, and I'm closing with this. You can, you can go to somebody like Mary and you can make do in your own strength. Or you can go to somebody and together you can go to Jesus and see what happens and have a wonderful story to tell. So where today do you feel like you're running out? Because God's promise and desire right now is to fill that up for you. The part that you have to do is say, I I need help here. Which is why somebody came and said, you know, because what we do in our little wedding feasts, which is our lives, we say, well, God knows our need. I don't need to say anything. Or we say, well, God will just do something. And we passively wait around and sulk and complain. No, the way you enter into the kingdom, the kingdom is about ask, seek and knock. So the first thing you do is you start saying, this is what I need. This is from my perspective. This is what I need. God's not worried about getting it all right. He just says, come. Come ask. And because he's your friend, he wants to respond. I grew up with a father where I had to have good reasons why I needed to borrow the car. I could never just say, because I want to go out. And God the Father took years to say, John, you can just say, I want to go out. And I'll go, sure, help yourself. Because he loves you. It doesn't mean it's a license to indulge. It just means blessing. Blessing. Because it's part of how we learn that I'm safe. That therefore I learn that if Jesus is with me and he can turn water into wine, I don't ever have to be afraid again that I'm going to be with nothing. Because I'm going to have community and I'm going to have resources and he's going to be able to release them just in time. What would it be like for you to live from a place of confidence that God has your back and your front and your side? That God actually knows your needs and he just says, ask. So let's stand and receive, shall we? Let's stand and receive. Because if he, need, if he knows how to leave money for a wash basin at my doorstep, you can be assured he knows how to meet your need. So what, where are you running dry? Where are you with Jesus today? And you might be really close to him. I'm not talking about everybody's got to be in a crisis. 
But just, in a sense, what would you like? What are you aware of in your life, in your heart, in your situations? And, and don't do this in a blaming, whining kind of way, because God doesn't turn anything into wine like that, you know, whining. He wants to transform. So be present for him right now. Just be present for him. Don't pay attention to anybody else. Jesus is right with you right now. Where do you want him to fill up? What do you want him to turn from water into wine? We just bring you those things, Jesus. It might be a relationship. It might be fear that you want transformed into love. It might be anything. It might be that you don't even believe what I'm telling you and you say, I'd like to believe. Well, then offer him that. You might be struggling with something in your life. You might be struggling with secrets. I'll tell you one thing that I'm becoming more and more aware of. It's, it's, is, is this whole battle with pornography. It's everywhere. And maybe you're struggling with something like that and you, you're not going to tell anybody, but it's wrecking your life. Or it might be greed. It might, it might be anything. And it's, you're just dry. And Jesus, I just pray that as we utter these requests to you, you would pour out your love, your healing, your grace. Just wherever you are, in whatever condition you're in right now, Jesus responds to you like that marriage feast. He just says, I'm glad you've invited me and I'm here for you. Now listen to my mother when she tells you to do what I tell you. And I will talk to you over this week and I will lead you. And if you, I would ask you to give me your feet. Follow me. So receive and how do you do that? You just say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you've heard my cry right now. Thank you that right now you are transforming what I've given you. Thank you right now I can actually stop saying, oh, I wonder what. But thank you, Jesus. How's this going to roll out? And he just says, well, wait and see. But Father, I pray that you release in every person here a revelation of your love and of your power and of your goodness. And that you will transform whatever they're calling out to you right now. You will transform that water into wine as they take hold of it. You have to take hold of it. I speak against passivity in the name of Jesus and I break it off you. And I speak against unbelief that says it will never happen. We've done this a thousand times. I just break the curse of that in the name of Jesus. And I bless the running wine that will transform our lives. Thank you, Father. We bless you, Jesus. I ask you to release healing in this body. It's going to release a few words. Um, there's somebody here, uh, oh, this is all the pos- this possibly, but I'm just going to say it like that, uh, who's struggling with a hysterectomy. You're either considering a hysterectomy or you've got complications and you're not sure what to do. And God the Father just wants to meet you there and guide you. I speak healing in that area for anyone who needs healing. If any of these things come up for you, it's really good if you go to the prayer group afterwards and get prayed for. Sometimes you don't, you don't need to explain details. You can just give a, a headline and have somebody pray because that's very powerful. Somebody's got some problems with sore throat. It might be linked with tonsils. I just speak healing into that area of your life into the bodies. Father, we we gather here on Sundays and we gather here because you are powerful and you are real. And everything about us matters to you. We ask you to forgive us where we don't believe anything will ever change. We call up faith to take hold of the promises of your goodness.
Somebody's got issues with blood cells, their white cells, the immune system. And I just speak healing to the, the, the immune systems. Uh, if, you, if you need healing for your immune system, just go get prayer for Jesus. I just declare healing over deficient, and I don't understand it, so I'm not going to say too much other than make immune systems what you created them to be, please. Restore immune systems where they're not working properly. In the name of Jesus, I speak healing over immune systems. That we would have the strength to resist the things that you created us to resist. In Jesus' name, we bless that word.